One day there were three men out hiking and unexpectedly they came across a large, raging, violent river. They needed to get to the other side, so um, they thought about it, but they had no idea how to get there. The first man then prayed to God. Please, God, he said, please give me the strength to cross this river. And poof, God made him uh, uh, with big, strong arms, great big paddle hands, and he dived into the river and struggled, nearly drowned, but he managed to get across it. The second man looked at this and, and thought, hmm, I need a little bit more than that. Please, God, give me the strength and the tools to get across this river. And poof, he not only had uh, great strength, there was a rowing boat in front, of his, he, in front of him. He leapt into the rowing boat, rowed really hard, nearly capsized, but he managed, after great struggle, to get across the river. So the third man thought about it, and he thought, well, that was good, but even that was a bit hard. So he prayed, please, God, can you give me the strength can you give me the tools and can you give me the intelligence to get across the river? And suddenly, poof, God changed him into a woman. And she walked across the bridge. Um, when I told that joke to uh, Kate Blanche, she said to me that that's the sort of thing that flies around uh, offices all the time in emails amongst the women at least and um, the men they tell their jokes don't they usually about blondes or whatever Richard Brewster will tell you that um, there are lots of um, uh, ethnically oriented jokes always against uh, the Irish it seems and to be honest most of it's pretty uh, harmless but there is sometimes a bit of an underlying edge Other people need to be put in their place. Other people, um, particularly people of a different kind, are a threat. Evolutionary uh, biologists have explained uh, all this at great length. They say that we are at root <coughs> simply biological machines fighting to pass on our genes. So we fight against other social and particularly ethnic groups because uh, they've got a different set of genes and we instinctively want to annihilate them. And we play complicated games with the opposite sex in order to maximise our own reproductive success. Men fight for status and uh, therefore for, uh, uh, and also for as many sexual conquests as they possibly can have with the minimum of commitment. And women compete for sex appeal so that they can have their choice of the highest status men. Life, say the evolutionary biologist, is simply a quiet but absolutely ruthless battle for the survival of the fittest. Every office joke, every social interaction, every love affair 
is a little manoeuvre in the great war between me and everybody else. Between my genes and the wider gene pool. And those are most successful in that war. Reproduce the most of their genes. And looking around our society today, I have to say, there is every sign that people more and more are behaving according to that fundamentally evolutionary model. It's not uncommon, for instance, in East Oxford to come across men who have fathered multiple children by uh, several different partners, and in evolutionary terms, that is an extremely successful strategy. One man in history who followed this strategy with uh, um, enormous success was um, Genghis Khan. Geneticists reckon um, uh, that today there are 16 million direct male descendants of Genghis Khan. And one of them is in this room. I'll leave you to work out who it is. What amazing prowess. But is Genghis Khan a model human being? Much as we may admire him in certain ways, I think most people would agree that there was something, to be honest, viciously subhuman about him. Not least in the way that he treated women. Surely a life devoted to fathering as many children by as many different women as possible is in the end a degraded human life, whether it's in the Mongol Empire or Cowley. Evolutionary explanations of human beings actually generate what overwhelmingly human beings sense is a subhuman picture of who we are. Doesn't begin to explain what most people instinctively sense the essence of what it means to be human. We are more than brute beasts. We are more than simple biological machines. There is something about us that looks on people who behave like that and says they're not quite what human beings were meant to be. And I hope, I started to persuade you last week, that where evolutionary understandings of human beings fail, the Bible succeeds. The Bible gives us a satisfying picture of what it means to be human. A, a picture that makes sense of the human condition. Last week we described, uh, that we saw that Genesis 1 um, uh, summarises what it means to be human in a little phrase. We are made in the image of God. And we saw that that means in the Bible that as a species we are given the responsibility to look after God's world on God's behalf. 
we uh, are uniquely people who know and understand the purpose of God for his world. He's told us. We are people who uniquely have a range of gifts and abilities so that we can look after God's world on his behalf. And we saw last week that, that, is, that there is great freedom in that, there is enormous joy in that, because we are called to be little creators on behalf of the Creator. That is our relationship with God's world. And it makes sense. We are not just one more species desperately fighting for survival. We are people set aside look after and care for the world. But uh, we need, to un- need today to explore another dimension of what it means to be made in the image of God. We need to explore what that means for our relationships with one another. Are we simply to succumb so this picture of us just battling against everyone else and battling against, between the sexes, not least. Or is there a grander vision for us? The first thing that I want uh, you to see um, this morning from Genesis 1 and 2 is how Genesis describes what we've called the origin of community. And that begins in chapter 2, verse 18, with that very significant statement. God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Something in God's creation we see here is not good. In Genesis 1, we saw God pronouncing his creation good seven times, and then at the end pronouncing it very good. But now something's not good, something's... Something's inadequate in the creation and it is the solitariness of the man. Human beings were not meant to be alone. One of our deepest instincts is to create community. You know, lots of animals live their lives in solitary isolation except for when they mate. Lots of other animals form loose sorts of social communities. Some quite tight local social communities. There is no species that has formed a global community. Which is what human beings have done. Human beings are deeply social animals. It is not good to be alone. And then watch in the story as the the drama of and what God does unfolds. God brings, in verses 19 and, uh, and 20, God brings animals to um, uh, the man and he names them, signifying his authority over them. Um, but in fact, the very fact that he is in authority over them. He is superior to them so that he can name them. Disqualifies them from being suitable helpers. Verse uh, 20, for Adam no suitable helper was found. We in our family love our dog. We're deeply upset that she's injured and she's... um, uh, suffering at the moment, as some of you may know. And she's, she's almost a member of the family, but in the end, she's not. 
In the end, she's a pet. In the end, we have different responsibilities towards the dog than we do to other human beings. The lovely Labrador, Kezia, is not a suitable helper, not a suitable partner. No, God's going to have to create something better than that. He's going to have to create someone better than that. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. For a moment, just for a moment, we'll look at it later. I want you to ignore the fact that she's female and uh, concentrate on the fact that it is another human being that God makes. Another person who shares the same flesh as the man. Adam describes her not, not, not as another created thing, but he describes her in a very interesting way. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, he says. This is a, this is a, a fellow sharer in my humanity. That's what I needed. I needed another human being. John Donne wrote, No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. We were made to function in community. Much of the standard rhetoric about human beings um, today actually, in the end, is against that. It was, it was Margaret Thatcher who famously said there is no such, such thing as society and though she was widely vilified for it, she was only echoing a widespread mood that there has been in, uh, in Western society in particular for the last generation or so. And in the end, the typical Western human being is a person utterly on their own in the crowd. That is how people feel. That is the rhetoric that is out there. We club together, but why? For personal advancement. We form relationships. Why? For personal fulfilment. We marry even still, some of us today. But only as long as it makes me happy. Just just look at the self-help books. They are amazing. Some of the most popular types of books there are in the Western world and they are all about how to make me happy over and against other people. Even the most popular marriage books are all about how to get what you want out of your marriage. 
And in the end, you see, though, it starts being an attractive vision that it ends up that I'm utterly alone. Because I'm on my own, fighting to get what I want, even in my marriage. Other people are just so many pawns in the great chess game where I'm desperately trying to win. Hence the television series Friends um, had such a powerful impact because it reacted against that vision. It was a group of people committed to one another through thick and thin. Hence, actually, the church today when it works, is a massively attractive thing. Because it's a model of people being committed to each other, not just for my good, but for the wider community good. And hence, a church, if it functions properly, models what it means to be human in a profound sense. I am not alone. I am with others who are committed to me, not just for themselves, but for this greater good. It's not good to be alone. God created another human being to form the first community. The second thing that we must give attention to, which we've jumped over, is the fact that it was a woman who was created. We must look at the, what you could call the origin of gender. God doesn't create another man. He does create a woman. And back in Genesis 1, we saw that introduced to us in a, in a fascinating way. Do you remember verse 26? God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, <coughs> over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. Notice, first of all, that um, mankind images God specifically as male and female. It's, it's as if, in that, those verses, um, um, men and women are both required in this picture to complete the picture of the image of God. But there's another bit of fascinating phraseology here in in those verses which accentuates that more. God speaks in the plural. Did you notice that? Let us make man in our image. Surely there's only one God, isn't there? Genesis 1 is not a a polytheistic document, much as uh, the odd sceptic has tried to suggest. From beginning to end, the Bible is monotheistic. That doesn't explain the, the um, God saying, let us make man. Ancient Hebrew scholars um, concluded as they wrestled with this plural that it must be God addressing the angels. 
gathering the angels round and saying, let us create man. But actually in scripture there is nowhere else an indication that the angels were involved in the process of creation. Rather they seem to be portrayed as, if, uh, where they are portrayed, as sort of standing back in amazement that God has done it on his own. So it doesn't actually work. Um, the idea of God uh, emphasising, uh, God, God addressing the angels and saying, let us make. Other people have suggested that it's a royal plural. In, the, in some languages, the, the, the we is, is used for, by people to emphasise their dignity. Remember Queen Victoria saying, we are not amused. Margaret Thatcher saying we have become a grandmother more recently <laughs> but Hebrew doesn't have the royal plural the royal we so Christians as they have looked back at that have often uh, uh, been tempted to, to see this as a first indication of the trinity of the fact that though God is one, he is one in a, in, a, in a confusing way because he is Father, Son and Spirit as well. I would have to say that it is impossible to draw a doctrine out of the Trinity, of the Trinity out of Genesis 1, 26, that little plural. But at the very least, it indicates that here is God somehow deliberating within himself. Now, I sometimes talk to myself and I sometimes say, what shall we do? But I think most people agree that's probably the first sign of madness. Perhaps God talking to himself is the first sign of there being some relationship within the Godhead. And that is, that is strengthened even more when you see that there is a tight connection between this, this plural, let us make um, uh, man and the plurality of human beings. Let them rule. Male and female, he created them. Somehow, there's a hint of a plurality in God and he wants that plurality to be expressed amongst human beings. And he made them male and female to do that. Elsewhere the Bible actually makes it clear that God made us in gendered human beings, male and female human beings, partly at least, to echo the relationship within the Godhead of God the Father and God the Son the eternal relationship that they had always had with each other. So when in Genesis chapter 2 we see the creation of man, oh sorry, of the, of, of, of the man and men, of, of the woman, 
we are seeing an expansion then of what God intends the relationship between the genders to be like. What it will mean then for us as male and female to image God relationally. The first thing that we need to notice, indeed for me the crucial thing that we need to notice, is that Adam the man does not name the woman. Now actually that's obscured by the translation of Genesis chapter 2 verse 23 because um, here he says now she is now bone of my bones flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman for she was taken out of man and that to, to our ears sounds very like uh, what he said what, was, what is described in verse 20 when we see the man gave names to all the livestock and God sees what name he gives them and that's the name that, that, that they have. But actually, the, the, the phraseology is really quite different between these two instances and very significantly different. Let me explain it in this way. We can name our cat. Okay? Emily gave our cat the name Milo. Tim gave our uh, his goldfish, the name Bingo. Johnny gave his rabbit the name Scarlowy. You'll have to ask him why. And they each had the right to do that. They, they created the name. But we have no right to name this city. All we can say is this city is called Oxford. We can recognise that, but we are not naming it. And the phraseology that's used in Genesis 1.23 is exactly that sort of phraseology. This person is called woman. I'm not inventing a name. Adam's not inventing a name for her. He's recognising who she is. It's an acknowledgement of her, not a naming of her. He is not treating her like the other animals over whom he has the right to create a name. He is seeing her as another person in her own right. And the name he uh, um, uh, um, uh, acknowledges her with is fascinating in that it sounds rather like from man or to man. It's, 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 a, it's very similar to the name for a man and yet, it, and yet it indicates coming to or going from being in relationship. She's my perfect complement, he's saying. She's my perfect opposite. She's my perfect match. She's my perfect partner. I can name those animals. I just must acknowledge her. She's my helper. Yeah, some people suggest that that word helper indicates um, uh, some superiority 
over uh, the man. Um, we'll come in a minute to the, there being some distinction, but uh, the word helper won't uh, get you there. God is the helper of people in Genesis again and again. He's in no way inferior to the man. Now there is a place where Adam does name his wife. It's in Genesis chapter 3. After the fall. Then we find, using exactly the phraseology that was used of his naming the animals, you find him naming his wife Eve in Genesis 3, verse 20. The word Eve means life. He now names her according to what she can do for him. She can be the vessel within, within which his life force can be passed on to the next generation. If you want to see a Genghis Khan vision for what it means to be a man and a woman, there it is in Genesis chapter 3. And it is a fundamentally fallen and broken vision. Before the fall, he does not name her. We are made, you see, as male and female to live in harmonious love. Just as the Trinitarian God lives in eternal, mutual, happy harmony. And that is not to say, as some feminists claim, that, that, that the distinctions are, are only accidental distinctions of biology. No, actually... Genesis 2 and then Genesis 3 makes it very clear that there is a distinction of role. We find, um, uh, uh, we, we find that Adam is given instructions about how they should lead their lives. We find that when they fall, when they sin and when they fall together, they are each judged personally for their own individual sins. But then, in Genesis 3, as we'll see next week, Adam, the man, takes overall responsibility, as far as God is concerned, for the sin of the family. And indeed the curse comes on the whole of creation. Through Adam, it says, so there is a distinction of responsibility, even a distinction of authority there between the man and the woman. Just as in fact Jesus made it very plain that though he was equal with God, he was God the Father, he was eternally subordinated to God, eternally submissive to God the Father. Now, we find that really hard to think of as a harmonious relationship because we now live the other side of three, well, no, not three, thousands upon thousands of years of man, men ruling over women, of men treating women as Eve's just someone who can do something for them. 
We cannot imagine there being a harmonious relationship where there is some differential of responsibility and authority, but equality as well. We cannot imagine that being happy. But the biblical vision is it is possible for that to be happy because that's the way we were made. So to those of us here who are Christians, let me say a few things. If you're married, is the vision of your marriage a biblical one? Are you honouring one another as male and female and the unique distinctions that that brings? Husbands, are you, are you respecting your wives' femininity? Wives, are you honouring your husband's masculinity and his role? Are you doing that in a way that mutually gives not, not just tactics to make me happy, but the glorious and deeper human happiness of giving to make the other happy and finding happiness in that. No, all marriages limp. Let, let's be really clear about that. All marriages um, uh, limp because we are still troubled by sin. But if you're a Christian here, you have the Holy Spirit and his purpose in your life is to make you the man or the woman you were supposed to be in that marriage. Are you working at that? Are you praying for that? And the singles here, are you relating to the opposite sex in the way that scripture calls you to? Too many people, I think, have a basically evolutionary model of their role. Men simply obsessed by finding a suitably fertile uh, uh, life partner and too often uh, women simply obsessed with making themselves sexually attractive so that they can get the best choice. It's not by accident, you see, that the New Testament says young men treat young women as sisters. That's the great calling for us while we're singles. Sisters. It's not by accident that it says, young women, do not, do, not, do not dress up in gaudy clothes. It's not because God likes us to be drab. He wants us to be, to, 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 to be pretty and to wear nice things. But there is always, always, always that pull on both sides to make women into sex objects. And men and women must resist that. Are you doing that? 
and for us as a, as a whole community. Jesus said, you're a city on a hill. God intended his people to be corporately a model of what humanity should be like, both in our relationship across the sexes, but in our relationships as fellow human beings too. Look at the, look at the New Testament and the admonitions to the church and you will find that, that, that 80, 90 percent of the admonitions are about preserving community. They are calls to love, calls to live, uh, forgive, calls to, calls to bear with one another, calls to be patient, calls to be gentle, calls, calls to be kind, calls to admonish people in all uh, one another, but with great humility. Why? Because it's as we live together that we really display the glory of the Trinitarian God who lives in eternal and joyful relationship. If you're on the edge of this community, this church community, and you're a Christian, don't stay there. Get involved. Get involved in a house group. Volunteer to serve in some way. Make friends. Get stuck in because it is subhuman not to be integrated into a community. And it is sub-Christian not to be part of God's community. And if you're not yet a Christian here, Let me just ask you, which, which vision do you prefer? The nature red in tooth and claw vision for being human? Life as a complex and subtle struggle for the advancement of me? Or the biblical vision of a new community with renewed human beings living the way God called them to be not in competition but in cooperation if that's what you want I want to tell you you will not find that in any profound way outside of God's people because it is the Christian church supremely that has always led the way in that vision it is the Holy Spirit that has enabled Christians to live like that if you want that you need to follow Jesus Christ. It is the only way.